Let's go ahead and read the text. Romans 3.21 But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Lord, would you come now and would you open up our understanding that we would really get this, Lord, we'd really get the gospel this morning. And would you work on our hearts that it would be a message that would that we'd fall in love with and would thrill us and a message that we could preach to ourselves every day. So work amongst your people by your Holy Spirit, we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. How can a sinner ever be made right with God? Would you agree with me that there really is no greater question that could ever be asked in that question? How can a sinner be made right with a holy God? If you settle that question... It really doesn't matter how little you have in this life, how little money or possessions or worldly glory or fame or power you have, because you will enjoy eternal, everlasting happiness with the Lord forever. But if you never settle that question, it doesn't really matter how much money or glory or power or fame or possessions you have in this life because you are going to experience everlasting misery in the life to come. This is the question that we have got to settle. And I would say, if you never find out the answer to that question, it would have been better for you never to have been born. That's really no exaggeration. If we die without being right with God, there is only the terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That's what Hebrews 10 tells us. But the really wonderful thing is that the Bible answers that question. The Bible tells us the answer to the most important question ever asked. How can a sinner be made right with God? Now, all the religions of the world answer that question by looking to man to human achievement, our performance, our deeds, our efforts, what man can do. The Bible points away from man and answers that question by pointing us to God, divine achievement, what God has done, what God performs. See, the religions of the world say do. The Bible says done. God has already done it. We rest in what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. The heart of the gospel is not do or try harder or be better. The heart of the gospel is your salvation has been worked out for you and provided for you, and it is a gift given to you freely by God. And so the answer to that question, how can a sinner be made right with God? The answer comes in the doctrine of justification. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Martin Luther, about 500 years ago, said that the church stands or falls on whether it heeds the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So we as a church, if Luther was right, we will stand 
if we understand and apply the doctrine of justification, and we will fall if we do not follow the, the doctrine of justification by faith. And so today, verses 21 to 24 in the book of Romans, chapter 3, we're going to enter the holy of holies of the Bible. I mean, <laughs> if you've been waiting for the good stuff, we've been going through a lot of the bad stuff for, for weeks, right? Sin, wrath, judgment, over and over and over. We're going to get to the good stuff today. This is the holy of holies of the Bible. It's the heart of the book of Romans. Many theologians have said this is the most important paragraph in the Bible. And if this is the most important paragraph in the Bible, then it's surely the most important paragraph ever written by any man. And so here we go into the Holy of Holies. Now, before we go there, though, we have to review a little bit. Remember that Paul gives us the thesis for the book of Romans back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And there he says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So what he's saying there is that the righteousness of God comes to those who believe. The righteousness of God is a gift from God to those who believe in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, you would have thought that Paul would have then gone on from that point and, and kept on amplifying and expounding on this righteousness that comes from God through faith. But he doesn't do that. Starting in verse 18, for almost three chapters, he talks about the unrighteousness of man to prepare us to receive the gospel of grace, the gospel which brings the gift of righteousness to man. You see, in verse 18, he says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is leveling every human being. He's showing that all are sinners. In fact, when we come to chapter 3, it's as though Paul is pulling us into God's courtroom. God is the judge. Paul is the prosecuting attorney. And Paul brings a charge against all men, both Jews and Greeks. Do you remember what the charge is? All men are under sin, under the dominion of sin. And then he begins to marshal his evidence to support that charge. And so he appeals to God's eyewitness testimony. What has God said about men? And he quotes six references from the Old Testament. Five of them are from the Psalms, one's from the book of Isaiah. And these references tell us about God's eyewitness testimony about the sinner's character, his conversation, and his conduct, and how he is depraved and corrupt through and through because of the fall. And then he brings out the motive for why men are this way in verse 18. It's because there, there's no fear of God before their eyes. They lack the fear of God. And then finally, he brings the verdict to bear in verses 19 and 20. The verdict is that all men are guilty before God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, by the time we get to verse 20 of chapter 3, the sky is pitch black. The storm clouds 
of God's wrath have gathered. You start to hear these deafening peals of thunder and you see these flashes of lightning that terrify. And the conclusion when we come to chapter 3, verse 20 is there's no hope. Everybody's lost. Everybody has to be damned forever because nobody can justify themselves through their efforts. But when you come to verse 21, it begins with the two little words, but now. And in those words, the the word but is a word of contrast. And wow, what a contrast we have here from total hopelessness to hope in Christ. But now, apart from the law, see, we saw that the law could not justify. All the law could do was expose sin. There's a new way. Not not the way that the Jews tried to be right with God through keeping the law. There's a new way. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God is manifested. And it's not a Johnny-come-lately doctrine. It was witnessed by the law or the, the prophets. What does he say? The law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. So when we come to verse 21, the storm clouds start to part. And the sun begins shining brilliantly. And there's this beautiful rainbow. And everything clears up and there is hope for us. Because of a new way that God has made with sinners. All is not lost. When we focus on man, it's hopeless. But Paul is focusing on God and what God has done. And it fills us with hope. There is another way of righteousness whereby we can be accepted by God. When you look at man, what do you see in the first three chapters? When you look at man, you see sin, unrighteousness, ungodliness, no excuse, every mouth closed, all the world guilty, no flesh justified in his sight, judgment and wrath. Right? That's what he's told us in the first three chapters. But when you start looking at God, starting in verse 21, you see his righteousness, his grace, and his redemption. And that's where we see the gospel, the good news. So today I want to think deeply with you about the doctrine of justification by faith. Because that's what Paul is going to be talking about. He says in verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Justification is God's way of making sinners right with himself. And we're going to look at three aspects of justification. First, we're going to look at the meaning of justification, and then the reception of justification, and then the cost of justification. So first of all, the meaning. What what does it mean to be justified? When we talk about justification through faith, what is that? What are we talking about? Well, there's several aspects to this. First of all, it's God declaring the sinner righteous. Now, listen carefully to that, that phrase I just used. I didn't say it's God making the sinner righteous. That's what the Roman Catholic Church believes, that it's God making the sinner righteous. It's God infusing righteousness into the sinner. I said it's God declaring the sinner righteous. You see, justification is the exact opposite of condemnation. And justification and condemnation are things that a judge does. He either will justify this accused or he will condemn the accused. 
Now, when a judge condemns the accused, is he making that person guilty? What's he doing? He's pronouncing his guilt based on the law. So justification is not God making the sinner guilty, it's him pronouncing the sinner not guilty or righteous or just in his sight. It's him pronouncing that, declaring that. Let me show you this from Luke 7, 29. And it, it really will make the most sense if you have a King James or a New King James Bible. Uh, I'm going to share with you the literal rendering of Luke 7, 29. It says, When all the people and tax collectors heard this, they justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now that's a really interesting phrase. They justified God. We say, how can someone justify God? If to, to, to justify means to make God righteous, how can people make God righteous? Well, it doesn't mean that, does it? They acknowledged God's justice. They declared, they pronounced God as being righteous and just. See, that's the meaning of justification. It has nothing to do with making someone righteous. That's sanctification. Justification is God as a judge declaring you to be righteous because you have faith in Jesus Christ. Christ's righteousness now becomes yours and God declares you as righteous in his sight. So that's the first thing we need to understand about justification. The, the words righteous and just and justified in the Greek language all come from this very same root. So we could coin a new word this morning. To be justified is to be righteousized, okay? It's for God to take his righteousness and give it to you. It's not based on your performance, your deeds, your efforts, your strivings, your trying to do better, anything like that. It's a gift given to the sinner while he's still a sinner, while he's not yet been sanctified. It's God covering him with his own perfect righteousness. Now, that's the first thing we need to understand about justification. It's God declaring the sinner righteous. Second thing, it's the crediting of God's righteousness to the sinner. Look at chapter 4 in Romans, verse 5 and 6. Paul says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is, and here's our word, credited, as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. He uses this word credit ten times in chapter 4. It's a very important word for Paul. And we really can't understand this doctrine of justification without understanding the word credit. It's also used uh, or translated sometimes as count or reckon or sometimes as impute. It's a banking term. It's like if you have an account in a bank and you're broke and you've got nothing in the account and then some very rich man who wants to do you a favor comes by and fills up your account with all kinds of money, millions of dollars. He has put that money to your account, right? Didn't come from you, came from somebody else, but your bank account now has a million dollars in it because someone else filled it up. You see, what God does is he credits you 
as having the righteous life of Christ. He gives you credit for living the same life Jesus lived, even though you didn't do it, because your faith is in him. And by faith, you are now united with Christ so that the life that he lived, his 33 years on planet Earth with no sin, perfect righteousness, perfect obedience to the Father, that life is given to you. And God gives you credit for having lived it even though you didn't. I hope that makes sense because that's that's at the heart of, of justification. So it's God imputing the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us. Now, third aspect of justification, it includes the removing of our sins. If we are ever to be right with God, all our sins have to be removed, right? We can't stand before him, God, or before God uh, with our sins, filthy in his presence. It just won't do. God, he, he cannot accept that kind of an individual into his presence. So our sins have to be canceled. Our sins have to be forgiven. And this is what David speaks about in Psalm 32. Verses 1 and 2. Listen to what David says. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. There's our word impute, or credit, or reckon, or count. They're all synonyms for the same idea. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Well, how can God not impute iniquity to somebody? because he imputed that iniquity to Christ. When Jesus hung on the cross, our iniquity was imputed to him. And God made Jesus liable for our iniquity so that we could have his righteousness imputed to us. This is great exchange that takes place, this great transfer. Our iniquity is placed on him. His righteousness now is placed on us so we can be accepted into God's presence. So justification includes the removing of our sins, but that's not everything. It is also the adding of Christ's righteousness. I have in the past, I've taught that justified, a good way to remember what justified means is just as if I'd never sinned. They sound the same, don't they? Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. And that's partially true, but it's only half the truth. Because that, if, if that's the whole truth, what that would mean is that as, as long as my sins were forgiven and canceled, I would be justified. But that's not the case. It's only half the truth. It takes more to be saved than just to have no sin. If that's all it took for Jesus to bring salvation to us, then he could have done, come down on Good Friday he could have died on Good Friday. He could have rose from the dead on Sunday morning and ascended back to heaven and our salvation would have been secure. But Jesus could not just achieve our salvation in three days. It took three, 33 years of a perfect life for him to save you. He was working out a life of righteousness so that he could give that to his people. So, no, forgiveness of our sins is only part of justification. It takes more to get to heaven than no sin. It takes perfect righteousness to get to heaven. You see, it's one thing not to break the law. It's another thing to keep the law. It's one thing not to do the thou shalt nots. It's another thing to do the thou shalts. 
let's say you're driving down a road and you see somebody standing there in the middle of the road. It's one thing not to run him over. It's another thing to pull over and help him, whatever he needs, and get him back on the road himself. You see, Jesus not only had to die for our sins, he had to live for our righteousness. His death was part of our justification, but his holy, righteous, perfect life was another aspect of our justification that was equally essential. Oftentimes we emphasize the death of Christ to take away our sins, and that's good and proper and wonderful, but there's this whole other aspect. We need to be looking at Jesus' perfect life. That's the life that God gives us credit for having lived. So, Jesus dealt with the sins of commission and the sins of omission. It's not just our the sins that we've committed that he covers. It's the sins that of the things we haven't done that we ought to have done. The Bible says that we ought to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And none of us has done that except for Jesus Christ. That's why we need his righteousness to cover us because he did love the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. So even if we don't actively do evil, we passively do evil because we neglect to love God with every fiber of our being. And so who has ever lived a perfect, righteous life? There's only one. Only one in the history of mankind. And he credits that perfect righteousness to you when you believe upon him. His death removes the debt of sin. His life adds infinite righteousness to your account. And when you're in union to him, you get credit for having lived the life that he lived. Okay? So now there's a great difference between being forgiven and being justified. And maybe this will help. A little illustration. Let's say a woman goes to a department store and she becomes horribly in debt for the purchases that she's made at that department store. She can't pay it. Now, if the store owner made a decision to cancel her debt, she would be forgiven of her debt, but she would always feel a little personal discomfort whenever she went into that store because she knows that things really were not settled. They just accepted the fact that she couldn't pay and they wrote it off, but she still would feel awkward going into that store. Let's say that that store owner is going to take her to court because of this loss, uh, this debt that she has. But in the meantime, before she goes before the judge, she happens to marry the store owner. And the store owner's son pays all of her debt for her. So when she goes before the judge, she can truthfully and honestly say, uh, I'm not guilty, Your Honor. That debt has been paid in full. And the judge would dismiss her debt because it has already been justly paid. See, that's justification. Because she has, uh, her, her debt has been paid, and, and now the law has been satisfied because the debt has been paid. It's not just forgiveness, we'll just drop this, we'll, we'll no longer make you pay that debt. No, the, the debt has been paid, and so in the court of law, she's free. So that's the difference between forgiveness and justification. Justification has to do with meeting the demands of God's law. And Christ did that when he lived a perfect life. And he gives us that when we believe upon him. So, that's the meaning of justification. Let's talk about the reception. How do you receive it? 
How can a person receive justification? Well, there's a wrong way and a right way. The wrong way. And this is the way that the Jews tried to receive their right standing with God. They tried to do it by keeping the law. And that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 3, 19 and 20, that no man can do. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that would be the Jews, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Okay, so we see this blanket statement made that there is nobody who can be justified by keeping the law. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. In fact, in Romans 3.28, Paul says, We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In other words, your works of law-keeping have nothing to do with your right standing before God. That's hard for us to accept because the world doesn't work that way. It's the merit system wherever you go in the world. God's way of justifying sinners has nothing to do with, to do with the way the world operates. You know, if you work harder and just work stronger and put more effort into it, you achieve more in life. Well, that's not the way it works with salvation. It's believing in what God has done through Jesus Christ that brings you this right standing with himself. So it's not through keeping the law. It's also not by keeping certain rituals. We saw that back in chapter 2, verses uh, 25 to 29, where Paul explains that circumcision has nothing to do with our right standing with God. In fact, when we come to chapter 4, Paul's going to explain in verses 9 to 12 that he was justified before God 13 years before he was circumcised. So he he was saved, before he got circumcised, 13 years before he was circumcised. So the ritual of circumcision had nothing to do with his right standing before God. And we could say the same uh, in terms of baptism, taking the Lord's Supper. Uh, when you talk about the Jews, the Day of Atonement observation, the sacrifice and ceremonies and festivals and feasts, all of those rituals, Sabbath keeping, had nothing to do with their justification before God. So the wrong way, by keeping the law, or by observing rituals. So what's the right way? Look at verse 22 and 23. He says, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. He mentions faith twice. First he mentions faith, then he mentions believe. And in verse 28, we maintain a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So this, verse 28 especially, has caused the church to embrace this understanding that justification comes to us by faith alone. You don't mix works with faith in order to be justified, because he says in verse 28, a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That means it's faith that is the essential thing. So we are justified through faith alone. Now why through faith alone? Well, he tells us in verse 22 and 23, it's because there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every individual on the planet, Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile, 
has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no way for any human being to be able to be justified by keeping the law because they've all sinned. So they're all guilty before God. And so that's why God offers the gift of his righteousness through faith. Men are not capable of being justified by the works of the law. God has offered his, his righteousness to them, his gift of righteousness through faith alone. Let's say, let's say we're at the Grand Canyon and somebody says, I'm going to jump over. I'm going to jump over from this side to the other side of the Grand Canyon. That's 10 miles long, but they're going to do it. And you've got two individuals there on the brink. You've got Carl Lewis, who is all these world records in track and field. He's the best long jumper, perhaps alive. And then you've got Judy Walpole, my (laughs) mother-in-law. And they're both on the brink of the Grand Canyon. Both of them are going to jump to the other side. So Judy Walpole, she does, she gets out of her walker and she hurls herself off the edge and she goes about two feet out and splats on the bottom. And you got Carl Lewis, and he runs, and he jumps, and he gets 30 feet out. And he jumps, falls to the bottom, and splats, and both of them die. Both of them fell short of their goal. Every individual, no matter if he's Judy Walpole or Carl Lewis or Brian Anderson or anybody else, we fall short of the glory of God. Some people might be a little bit more moral than others, maybe make it out a little bit further, but all of us fall far short of the glory of God. That's why we need to be justified through faith because our efforts at jumping will not achieve the goal. We can't get there by our own efforts. There's an old poem that says, do this and live the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. So, What kind of faith is it that justifies? If it's true that we are justified through faith alone, what kind of faith is it? Well, it's a certain kind of faith. All men have various kinds of faith because all men place their confidence in various things. If they get in their car and they drive down the road, they have a certain level of faith that their car is going to take take them from point A to point B. Or if they get in an elevator, they have faith that the elevator is going to take them up to floor number six. We exercise faith in worldly measures constantly, all day long. But what kind of faith is it that justifies a person? Well, the Bible teaches that true faith, the faith of God's elect, is a gift of God. It's a faith that endures, and it's a faith that produces fruit. False faith is a faith that is temporary, and a faith that does not produce God's fruit. John Calvin made this statement. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. It may sound, I don't know, it may sound like, how does that work? But think about it again. We are saved by faith alone, not in a mixture of works and faith. We're saved by faith alone, but the kind of faith that saves is never alone. In other words, that faith goes on to bring forth the fruits of righteousness. Those are the fruits of that faith. True faith produces holiness, seeks God's glory. So if a man says he has faith, but it doesn't produce fruit, or it's only temporary, then that man is a fake or an imposter. He's not a true disciple of Christ, and he doesn't have the faith 
that brings forth justification. Now, let's look at the third aspect of justification. What's the cost of justification? What's the price tag? Well, it's absolutely free to us. We see that from verse 24. He says, being justified as a gift by his grace. Now, let's think about each of those phrases for a minute. It says, being justified. That tells us a lot right there. Being justified. There's different tenses in the Greek language. There's active and passive. This is passive, meaning that we're not the ones doing the justifying. It's happening to us. We are being justified by somebody else. Now, if God is the one doing the justifying of me, that means I don't have to do it. That means that whatever God does is free to me because uh, he's the one doing it. I'm not having to add any price to this, to this activity. Secondly, he says being justified as a gift. That word means freely or gratuitously. And, and last time I checked, you can't pay for a gift. If it's a gift, you can't pay for it. That's the definition of a gift. You cannot pay in any sense of the word for your salvation. You can't. There's nothing you can do to buy it, to earn it, to deserve it, to merit it. It is a free gift. And then he says, by his grace, being justified as a gift by his grace. So where does this gift of righteousness spring forth from? The grace of God. Well, what is grace? You know, we, we can give a, a dictionary definition, unmerited favor. That's usually the one given. Let's look at a Bible definition. Go to chapter 4 of Romans. Look at verse 4. It says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. That word favor is the exact same word in the Greek as grace. So just substitute grace. Now to the one who works, his grace <laughs> is not credited, I'm sorry, his wage is not credited as grace, but as what is due. So if you work for a company and they give you a paycheck, they're not giving you grace when they give you that paycheck because they owe it to you. And if you don't get it from your company, you can sue them because you have a legal right to that money. You worked for it, you earned it, and if they withhold it, then, then they're breaking a law and not giving it to you. It's not grace for them to give you a paycheck. See, grace is the opposite of getting what you are due. You see? It's getting what you're not due, what you're not entitled to, what you haven't earned, what you haven't deserved. It's something that comes freely. It's something that was unsought, unbought. It's God's favor not unto the undeserving, but to hell-deserving sinners. That's what grace is. So God justifies us by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There, there's a story of a woman who was in England, a poor woman who had a very sick daughter, and her daughter needed some fresh fruit to get better. And so she's walking around the streets of London trying to f see if she can find some fruit. She only has a few copper coins in her purse, and she walks by the royal palace, and she sees inside the royal palace these 
orange trees and these vineyards laden down with fruit. And she's wistfully looking in, wishing she had the means to somehow be able to get that fruit for her sick daughter. And the princess notices her condition. And she goes and she prunes back the the vineyard. She brings this whole basketful full of grapes and oranges and she brings them out to this woman and she offers them to the woman. And the woman awkwardly sticks her hand into her purse and brings out the couple of, of copper coins that she has and offers them to the princess. And the princess turns to her and says, Madam, these grapes are not for sale. My father is a king and he's much too rich to sell. And besides, you are much too poor to buy. You can have these grapes for free or not at all. That's how salvation comes. You can have salvation for free or you can't have it. (laughs) That's just the way it is. You can't buy it. There's nothing you can do to add to what God has done. You just accept it freely from his hand. So the cost of justification is absolutely free to us, but it is of infinite cost to God. Because he says, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus... You see, someone had to pay for it. We couldn't pay for it, so God did, out of love towards us. The word redemption means to set free by the payment of a ransom. Sin had turned us all into slaves. The ransom pride had to be paid to set us free. And Jesus said, The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. What was the ransom price? What did he give? His life. That was the price. Over in 1 Peter 1, it says his blood was the price. It's talking about the same thing. His life given unto death, his blood, that was the price that the Son of God had to pay to redeem, to set free those of us who were enslaved to sin. Um, If you've ever seen one of those old movies where somebody captures a millionaire's son, And then he calls him up on the phone and says, unless you give me the ransom price of a million dollars, we're going to kill your son. But if you'll leave the million dollars in this brown paper sack, in this location, we'll set him free and you can have your son back. We won't kill him. That's a picture of redemption because we were the son who was captured by sin and we're going to be killed unless we were set free by another. And what Christ has done. And it wasn't a million dollars. It was the infinite cost of God the Father giving up His Son for our sins unto death. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not also with Him freely give us all things? That was the cost. God didn't spare His Son. Do you remember Abraham offering up Isaac, taking the knife and getting ready to plunge it through his heart? It was a picture of God the Father giving us the gift of redemption through offering up His own Son. So that's the cost. Free to us, infinitely costly to God the Father. Now let's draw out some application from this, this morning. There's really only two kinds of lost people. There's only really two kinds. There's good lost people and bad lost people. But they're all lost people. Good lost people, those are the religious people, the moral people, those people who try to obey the law, 
These are the people that try to justify themselves through their obedience, their law-keeping, their rituals. God's word to them is stop trying to justify yourself because you can't. Once D.L. Moody was preaching, he was a famous evangelist of the 1800s, and uh, someone came up to him and said, Mr. Moody, Mr. Moody, what must I do to be saved? And Moody said, it's too late. And the man said, what? What do you mean it's too late? Surely there must be something I can do. And Moody says, no, I'm sorry. It's too late. God has already done everything that needed to be done for your salvation. That's way with us. The, the good lost person thinks that there's something that he must do. He's confused. Most people are confused about the way to heaven. They think good people go there, bad people go to hell. People who have a good heart, they go to heaven. People with a bad heart, well, the problem is everyone's got a bad heart, even if they're outwardly moral. So God has provided his gift of salvation for free or for not at all. It's not for sale. Augustus Toplady wrote that hymn. He said, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Somebody wrote these words. Lay your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Do you know our doing can be deadly? If we think that we can justify ourselves through it. Lay it down. Lay it down and renounce anything of yourself and say, Lord, if I am to be saved, you're going to have to wash me or I'm going to die. Please wash me. Now, what about bad loss people? Maybe, maybe somebody here would be in the category of a bad lost person. This is the person that up until now, he hasn't really cared about his sin, obeying God, um, living a moral, upright life, but he's starting to be crushed in spirit or humbled in, by his sin. And his problem is the exact opposite of the good right, righteous person, the good lost person. We tell him his good works can't save him, but we tell the bad lost person that his bad works won't bar him from salvation. Jesus said, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men. In 1 John 1, 7, he says that, um, what does it say? <laughs> Let me look. <laughs> 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men. The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. In other words, there's nothing that you've done that is so bad that bars you from the hope of everlasting life. That's what we tell the bad lost person, the irreligious person, the person who has been a drunkard or an addict or a prostitute or a pimp or a homosexual or an adulterer or a thief or a gambler or a liar, you take your pick, that kind of a person, God's justification is 
is open to you. He provides it to you. And nothing bars you from it except yourself. It can be had freely through faith in Jesus Christ. Take the water of life without cost. What does it have to say about the person who is in Christ, the Christian, which most of us are this morning? What it tells us is that we are perfectly accepted by God, not just for now, but for eternity. We are clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, and God could not be any more pleased with you than he is with his own son. There's nothing you can do to make yourself any more acceptable to God than you already are. There's nothing you can do for God to be more approving of you as he already is if you are in Christ. You stand perfectly accepted, perfectly approved by God. And so if that's true, you don't need the approval of man. You already have the greatest approval that you can ever have, God's approval. And we make a great mistake of going around trying to get everybody else to approve of us. We already have God's approval. So God's justification is the only ground of your acceptance with him. Everything else will fail you. But, but that, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All of the ground, everything else is sinking sand. So if you are in Christ, never look to anything else for your acceptance. Never let the devil start to convince you that you've got to do this or that, or God won't love you, God can't accept you, God won't approve of you. If you are in Christ, you have all of that already. You don't need anything else. You have his acceptance. Romans 10, 11 says that the one who believes in Jesus will never be disappointed. Never be disappointed. So if you are in Christ, rejoice and rest and enjoy God. Enjoy your salvation because it's given to you freely. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the, the beautiful good news. The wonderful good news. We thank you, Lord, that it's not up to our striving or our performance, but it's been something that Christ has wrought out for us by his finished work. We bless you and thank you, Lord, and worship you for the great giver. <laughs> not, we're not the givers, Lord, you are. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.